Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. Let's make the case for independent physicians today. Every state is a monopoly or duopoly for insurance carriers, and nearly every metro, over 85%, it's the same for bigs, big systems or big hospitals. So bigs' lifeblood is volume, and monopoly is the best way to get there. For all the verbosity on value-based care, it's under 5% of the pie. Fee-for-service is most of the rest. Factory medicine, sick care, reactive care. It's gotten us here. Nobody likes it. So let's frame this as corporatized by bigs care, especially monopolies, versus a category we'll call independents. Independent docs are about 45% of what's out there overall in physicians, but among primary care with 643,000 white coats under a third left or independent. The CARES Act two years ago took care of a lot of that buying. So does United Health Group or HCA or Common Spirit or Kaiser deliver better or worse outcomes than independent physicians like today's guests? It's a good question. Well, we don't really know because some measure HEDIS, some measure net promoter scores, some take Google ratings, for God's sakes, leapfrog ranks for hospitals, but there are no shortage of quality metrics, and it's near impossible to objectively side-by-side calculate if bigs deliver better than independent doctors do. But here's what we can know for sure. Instant, and I mean the instant that an independent sells their practice and goes to work for a big, pricing will double overnight. At least there will be no charge in quality of care, no better user experience. But being tethered to a hospital's NPI, you can expect a doubling of costs. I had a PCP exam this week that was tethered to a hospital and the fee was 150 bucks. That used to be 70 to 80 bucks when I was at an independent. This one happens to be super close to my house. So we consumers will see it as our deductibles can get burned through twice as fast. So we pay for that. How is that okay in any other profession? Try to imagine your energy bill, your gas prices or groceries doubled overnight. Yet we accept it. We call that a racket in any other universe. Number two, the referral pattern steers consumers to hospitals and hospital and imaging and surgery and other diagnostics at two to four times the cost of independent imaging and diagnostics. Stark and anti-kickback disallow independent physicians to self-refer. But that's precisely what big-owned docs do. In fact, they get rewarded for it. And you better not leak any referrals out of the mothership. They measure your leakage, and you can get dinged. So this is a self-referral exception. Let's call it a racket, since we're already on the topic. And that's an uneven playing field, and the bigs lobby will ensure that uneven playing field never, ever changes. Another racket. So bigs own the game, and they own the referees. They can deflate the football and call it legal because they own those referees. Number three, today's guest as an independent can grow one of three ways. He can grow organically, he can finance it with banks, or he can grow it with private equity and give up some shares. Because unlike a nonprofit system, he does not have access to cheap muni bond financing for buildings, nor 
Ritzy galas and large fundraising staffs for lavish entertaining. They're the best galas in town usually. Nor does he have skyboxes or naming rights to entertain. I can think of two stadiums that have naming rights with hospitals names on the outside. One in Houston, where I come from, if you've ever well, go to soccer games. And can you imagine any other nonprofit with a stadium? Can you imagine the Goodwill Arena or the Salvation Army Ballpark? It's laughable, right? But dwarfing all that gaming, the Masterstroke, thank you, American Hospital Association, is the greatest racket of them all. It's brilliant. They got a trillion point one from you and me over the pandemic, and they bought over 200,000 independent positions, mostly in Florida, Texas, and Georgia over the last two years. Using our tax dollars, Congress was almost unanimous in two votes. In hindsight now, we know that the big systems did fantastic in a lockdown and doubled strategic reserves. They never needed the trillion dollars, except the rurals did, but the bigs didn't. How do they do fine? Well, I'm going to thank Sean Strash, who's a former guest of this show, for this nugget of truth we didn't know about. But CMS signaled zero audits for anything coded COVID for those two years. So flu coding dropped to zero. Flu reimbursement is bread and butter for bigs and the rest of primary care for four months of the year. Yet it dropped to zero. But if the IRS told you and me, hey, well, you know what? We're not going to do any audits this year on your taxes. What would America do? Even the honest guys and gals? You'd be stupid to pay taxes. So fraud is to be expected. San Francisco downtown has seen habits retailers leave because the popo won't arrest the shoplifters as long as they grab under $950. So why not shoplift? And what store has any incentive to stay open? What bigs would not cheat a no audit Willy Wonka golden pass for two years? I don't blame them. So the feds financed this whole scheme, higher pricing, self-referral gaming, actual taxpayer cash of over a trillion, that exceeded the actual Marshall Plan. They even called it a Marshall Plan. And no audits. And number four, and this is a bigger insult maybe than a trillion of our tax dollars, is that nonprofit hospitals, but more accurately, let's call them non-taxpaying hospitals, are 70% of all beds. They get a break, uh, local, state, federal, county taxes, name the tax, they get a break on it. Scot-free. They use our roads. They use our military. They depend on our fire and police and waste and on and on and on. But they get a free ride on all those. But wait, Ron, they do important indigent charity work. No, not so fast. A John Hopkins study this year showed that when you strip all the accounting gimmicks and games that the big self-report, true charity care is under 3% of their budget. For-profits like Tenet and HEA actually give 1% higher than the nonprofits do when you strip all the games out. Ain't that a pile of stinking mothballs? Well, so hospitals are going to be a top two employer in all but a few states. Walmart and them switch lots 50 times, so you don't know who's going to be first, but they're always in the top two. That's a lot of stroke to be a top employer in a state. And they're going to be the biggest local advertisers. Ask any investigative TV or news reporter. They're untouchable. The bottom line is independents do pay taxes. Seems the fairness is all we hear about these days, this modern era. But how about fairness to the cornerstone, primary care? How about fairness to the backbone, primary care physicians? How about fairness to the centerpiece of all health care? Primary care generates over half of all visits in America. As the feds kept pay for decades now on all the docs, I want to paraphrase and end this rant with my favorite economist, Uwe Reinhardt. He says it seems odd to cut pay of under 8% of the cost of health care and demoralize the very doctors who deliver it. I'm excited today to introduce you to Andy Thompson, who serves as the COO of 
the Pediatric Associates, the nation's largest independent pediatric medical group, which has expanded following investments from private equity firms. And Andy joined in November of 2022 to lead the scaling of the firm, and they currently employ over 1,000 PEDs and advanced practice providers in nearly 300 locations across seven states. Andy, before that, was president of the East Region for Village MD. You'll remember Clive Fields was a guest, and where he led the design, structure, and performance of the developing employed medical group during the time when 600% growth in providers was going on. And he had to design around continuously improving operational performance with this giant hockey stick across 13 existing developing new markets. And before Village MD, he was assistant medical group COO for a 2700 provider integrated group. Welcome, Andy, to the show. Thanks, Ron. I'm excited to be with you today. And we're excited to have you. Do you have any comments before we get going? No, I I really appreciated your intro. And and as you've mentioned in my background, I, I feel like someone who's lived all sides, specifically in the physician space, but but having made that transition from large health system focus, not for profit, not for tax, if you will, to the the independent, originally BC backed with with Village MD, and then private equity backed with pediatric associates. And and I can tell you making that transition has been incredibly eye-opening. Tell me how. Well, look, I spent nearly 20 years, uh, the first 20 years of my career in not-for-profit healthcare because I wanted to be part of a mission. To, to me, I, I feel all of us have an obligation to improve healthcare and recognize the fact that it's broken. Frankly, Ron, I'm a little bit of a true believer when, when it comes to that. And so that that's where I went, uh, right you know, from college on through. But it took me longer than it probably should have to become a little disillusioned with really what the motivations happen to be and, and recognizing, especially always having been on the physician practice side in these large health systems, that it's it's all about the care and feeding of the revenue source, which is, of course, the facilities themselves. I, I feel that most of the health systems are attempting to commoditize the physicians and providers. And when you look at the numbers, to your point, where the care actually exists for our communities isn't in the facilities themselves, it's in the clinics. And so uh, having decided to make that jump and actually help drive true innovation and, and true change um, and, and challenge a new model and become part of something different. And it's been, you know, the, the thing that has surprised me most probably having made that transition is with everybody I work with, whether it was at Village MD or with Pediatric Associates, there's no less of a mission focus than I ever experienced uh, with the non-for-profits. And in fact, in many ways, there's a stronger uh, focus on mission because there's a stronger focus on rapid movement, innovation, and improvement uh, at a pace and agility that just wasn't possible with the big health systems. You I, So Clive, Clive Fields and I went to school together. We were in the same fraternity. Uh, we're a year apart. And um, so we've been in, in touch for a long time. And when Village MD sort of discovered value-based care, I got kind of excited because it was something new and different. And then he kind of blew it up. And then, of course, this deal with Walgreens uh, with uh, over five billion invested has turned into a real expansion opportunity for Village MD. What is that like riding the roller coaster up that fast uh, in a company where you're hiring that many doctors all across the country? Uh, wild. Uh, and but one of the greatest professional experiences I've ever had. And, and I can say that Clive Fields is one of my favorite people uh, in, in this world. I, I have a lot of respect for him and, and what he's done and continues to do. I think uh, having that chance to really build something from the ground up, but at a pace that 
it just can't be contemplated in the not-for-profit realm. And frankly, at a pace that even in, in the for-profit fast growth outpace more, um, it's, you know, it, it, it's an incredible challenge, but it also gives you such a good appreciation for uh, those that do it well and, and what it takes to do it well at scale. Uh, because being able to see and help drive through that uh, comparison between mature practices, such as Clive's practice with Village Family Practice, which has been, you know, a leader in value-based care for many, before value-based care was a popular term, um, on up to opening a new site on average every three days, co-located in the Walgreens, where we're bringing in new providers, new staff, forming a team, creating that mindset with the focus on value right from the get-go, and frankly, trying to orient the patients whom we're trying to recruit into those practices to help them understand how that's a differentiated model. And, and learning that it's it's widely variable, one state to the next, one city to the next, what that focus is, what that interest and engagement is, whether it's from the payers, the patients, or, or even the medical community. Um, and, and that said, uh, I didn't get a lot of sleep, um, I lost the rest of my hair, which there wasn't really a lot holding on. So I'm glad this is a podcast, not a video. Um, and and it, it was absolutely phenomenal. So Andy, I've been watching the one ads, tons of ads for NPs and uh, MDs, DOs, but none I've seen for PAs. So the village model appears to be, you know, if you're going to use a nurse, you're going to use a nurse practitioner. If you're going to use a mid-level, not PA, but um, I've been in a couple of clinics. I live a block from one of them. They're pretty tight. You know, Walgreens has to give up some space and quit selling some shelf stuff, but they get a clinic in response. But it's a kind of a tight, it doesn't like a Walmart health clinic feels like you could play racquetball or bowl in it. These clinics are efficient. I describe it politely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the point. I think, you know, part of it for what it's worth is we actually employ quite a few physician assistants. Um, it's, you know, I think a lot of times that the term advanced practice provider becomes synonymous with nurse practitioner and, and just on pure volume, especially in the primary care space, that's still very much, you know, the, the circumstance, but, but as far as the village clinics, that was actually one of the focus areas is that you shouldn't need a large space because if you have a large waiting room, what does that tell you about what the experience is for your patient? If you're giving up 30% of your real estate that you have, no matter the size of the practice, to have people sitting around staring at a wall, waiting to see a provider who's running late, you're designing for the wrong thing. And so that the area that, that Village really focused on is let's concentrate on what matters most and how we can make that a positive experience in doing so. And so that the point was it should be a small waiting room because we really don't want patients to have to be there for any duration of time. And after that, you can then get the patient room relatively quickly. It was actually a very smart design. We got a lot of compliments from the exam room design from our patients and with them and their families in mind and, and accessibility. Uh, but it's also nothing wasted. And, you know, what I'd say is having worked in hundreds of clinics over the years and anywhere from massive, you know, six story medical office buildings to uh, trailers in Missouri, um, I think there's so much that gets lost with the focus on efficiency. And, and again, compared to the health system or so on, where do you want the money being spent on the people providing the care or marble floors? Okay. Well, I want to, those are very good points you just made. I want to get into some of the metrics for what you're doing now and what you did before with Village. Sure. I'm not asking you to dish, but I do want to know 
Um, we ask these questions pretty much of everybody. And what are the quality metrics that you look at when you're running pediatric associates? And what are the quality metrics you're looking at for outcomes, particular patient outcomes for uh, Village Medical? Yeah. Um, so I'll start with Village Medical because, the you know, of course, Village Medical saw all patients, all payers, pretty well all ages. Um, and it wasn't a pure senior focused practice such as, you know, Oak Street and, and some of the others. Uh, but but the the measures were similar, certainly fetus um, for both because it's a widely accepted measure for which there's a lot of good comparative data, um, as well as the fact that, quite honestly, that's part of how we earn, right, from a performance measurement standpoint. But on top of that, it was really around um, the outcomes that were driving the patients. And, and as you know, a, a lot of HEDIS measures around closing gaps, which, you know, should ostensibly help prevent, you know, use utilization and need down the road. Um, but where we really also focused was things like ED utilization per 1,000 patients, admission rates per 1,000 patients. And of course, within that very tightly cohorted against age ranges, uh, gender, disease state, um, so on and so forth. And, uh, and, and what we found above all else is what folks needed was access to care when they needed it, right? And and people don't get sick on a calendar. Um, and so uh, that was really our primary focus. And then within that, as you can imagine, we had hundreds of metrics in and around frequency of utilization, completing the screenings. We found that, especially for those with high disease risk, seeing them on a more frequent basis had a really massive impact on their overall health. Uh, they're they're, they're self-reported condition, their experience they had with us, as well as the need for admissions down the road and, and other more urgent situations. And so so for us, it was, you know, HEDIS measures are important um, and you need to show out. But but really, uh, for us at the end of the day, it was, you know, put your money where your mouth is and show that what you're doing and the type of care that you're providing does have a material impact on patients' outcomes. And, you know, Clive is is the, the person who taught me, you know, the way we really looked at it was number of healthy days at home for the patient was, okay. was our focus. Um, well, well, let's talk for a second about ChinMed we've had on the show, and they'll be back again soon. They are full risk. Most value-based care for all the hoo-ha about value-based care is not full risk, it's partial risk. Right. Why, why aren't more people doing full risk? Is it too scary to jump off the diving board and maybe hit concrete? I, I think it's a couple of things. One is it, the kind, I mean, by name alone, it sounds scary, right? If, if you don't fully understand what that means, you know, that there, there are the kind of macroeconomic perspectives of, you need to have a panel of patients in that group of a certain size, just for arbitrage purposes, right? Because if you have a relatively small group of patients within that payer, and you have one or two catastrophic cases of really ill patients, it can sink a smaller group. Uh, the, the other thing I think that has, and, and Ron, as you talked about the, you know, the push towards employment of physicians, another reason that it's pushed them in this direction um, is the need for really material, deep data and analytics. Uh, it's, you, you can't effectively manage a population just off an EHR because the EHR is focused on singular acute incidents and capturing what we did when the whole point of value-based care is taking knowing what's going on with the patient and taking care of them when they're not there in front of you in that practice. And so that that requires a lot of coordination, a lot of resources. 
that a smaller practice, it's it's just not feasible. They don't have the economies of scale to be able to stand those up most of the time. In the airplane, there's a visual where the pilot after the two gets sick has to fly a, a jumbo and he's got like an endless panel of dials and measures. Do you teach your physicians how to read the metrics so that they have a simple understanding of the key dashboard metrics, not just this massive amount of data? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. I was talking to my my team in Phoenix this week and we were talking about what measures we were going to use. And, and, and to your point, Ron, there's beauty and simplicity. Um, nobody's necessarily impressed if you hand over a spreadsheet that's got 300 different measures on it. That's great. But my focus as an operator, not as a clinician, is how do I focus the effort, right? What's most impactful that they need at the time that they need it to support their decision-making. And so a big part of our job was how we titrate down that information, that data into really, we want them focusing on process measures, all of our practices, because it's what are we doing today for that patient with that patient that we know is gonna have a positive impact on their outcomes down the road. And so how we integrated those things into the daily process is because a lot of it doesn't actually necessarily hinge on the provider themselves, but when we check the patient in, are we capturing the right information? Are we talking to them about their screenings? Are we helping schedule them for the mammogram or whatever it happens to be? And so really it's how we surround the providers with the supplemental care with a view towards what those other things need to be and, and allowing the providers to focus on what they do best. I may be reading something in what I just heard you say, but are you saying that a high-risk patient um, with chronic disease is going to have a different dashboard than the healthy younger patient? Uh, yeah, probably, because within certain disease states, there, there are things you want to monitor uh, for patients. So, you know, if you have a congestive heart failure patient and you're monitoring their ejection fraction, right? COPD, you know, similar. And, and so how you, diabetes, right? How you manage a diabetic patient uh, whether it's diabetic education, managing their A1C levels, you name it. And so it's really a question of the general health of a younger population who probably doesn't yet have five or six chronic conditions. For them, it's a focus on how do we prevent them from ever getting said chronic conditions, right? And identifying behaviors, lifestyle, other things in their health record that would indicate a, a you know, a, a potential prevalence in the future for that. And so it's a, it's a, it's a prevention focus. And, and really for those that already have the disease, what we're trying to do is avoid exacerbation or worsening of it. Okay. So my fantasy for what a care plan would look like for a chronic, and this is going to represent 70 to 80% of the cost of healthcare in America, are the, the people that are um, out of control. Oh yeah. Um, especially if they're I've been not aware they're out of control, but I would say in a perfect world, they've got the data exhaustive of scale, a wristwatch or a ring, you know, um, that data exhaust is being fed into your care team at Village or at PD, you're getting, well, of course, PD is going to be different, but you're getting a constant flow of data. If somebody is on track and on top of, and their, their numbers are all looking right and they're in the green light, they don't get a call. But if they're in the yellow or red and they're not reporting or they're not doing the right movements, sleep, uh, exercise, uh, nutrition, they get a, you get a red light and the care team, team engages them at some level. It could be you know, digital or could be a real person, but like I, I'm, a, you and I are the quarterback of our own health and we're not in a clinic 99.9% .9 of the time. That's right. It would be impossible to get me healthy if I'm not really super actively in the quarterback seat, as opposed to relying on, uh, you know, clinic visits. That's right? right. So how, what do you see as the perfect world? If you could design your current 
you know, PD associates, if you could design a perfect world for the sicker patients that need a lot of attention, what does that world look like? Uh, to your point, it's how do we support their health and monitor their health so that we can intercede before it becomes too late, right? And, and, and a really acute issue in a way that at the hard part at the same time is respecting our patient's privacy, right? And making sure that they're in, and, and to your point, Ron, at the end of the day, this is about motivation of the patient or the parent oftentimes for, for pediatrics to uh, to be aligned with, with what our providers and clinicians identify as the things that are most important for them. And so it's a combination of you have to gain that alignment and frankly, that trust first that that's the case. And that's through education and time spent. But beyond that, helping them understand what are the things they should be on the lookout for? And by all means, using wearables, other devices, we use connected scales when we we're at Village for monitoring uh, a, a number of our different patient populations. And certainly these days, the diabetic monitors are getting better. Um, heck, my 84-year-old mom, we bought her an iWatch uh, so that because it detects a fall, right, and can call 911. So uh, you're, exa you're exactly right. And so it's going to be crossing that chasm, but at the same time, as we all know, there's a pretty deep mistrust of tech when it comes to respect for privacy. And there's nothing more private uh, and more sensitive for folks than their individual care, their health, their their bodies. And so that's getting to that level of trust and, and that right balance, I think is going to be the big challenge. Well, it's so funny what we call it, Andy. We call it patient monitoring. You also monitor prisoners with ankle bracelets. But if we call it patient engagement, you know, now they're part of a team with the care team. That's a that's more positive upbeat work. And even calling on patients, you know, in, in direct primary care, we call them members because that's, right. that's what they are. They're, they just joined a club, you know, and they're uh, they're paying a membership fee, a subscription. So uh, it's much softer language when you get away from monitoring. And you know, we're going to watch you, Grandma. And if you fall down, and you better not fall down when you're dating that guy we don't like. You know, I mean, <laughs> nobody wants to be. Nobody wants to be, you know, big brother yeah. to death, right? Exactly. And, and nobody wants to be big brother either, right? Like the whole point is we want to have a positive supporting relationship with that. We, we want to be moving in the same direction. And, and you're, you're exactly right. And so I, 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 I use probably a little harsher, more um, clinical terms, but that's probably just belying my age and background. Okay. And I don't, I don't even know if you can answer these next two questions, Andy, but the first one is, I, I think the best metric to know if doctors should join your current operation or the village MD operation is the retention. Are they keeping the doctors, nurses, and, and PAs on board year to year, or is there a high turnover even after they've come on just a year or two ago? What, is, what do your turnover numbers look like in both your current and your past gig? So I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I tell my team all the time that the two measures that actually matter most to me, Ron, uh, our, our pro provider engagement survey results and our staff engagement yep. survey results for that reason. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so what I would say is that it's, it's very mixed. Um, especially if you think going through rapid growth through acquisition, where you often have a handful of selling owners who are very engaged in the process and, and see this as a benefit. And then they're in, they're employed providers who had no say in the matter, right? And so it, it's you, you have to be really thoughtful about how you start that relationship and build that trust. What I would say is that uh, within pediatric associates, we are right about the national average on turnover without listing the statistics, but um, between APPs and physicians, but th there's variance by market. And, and that was actually one of my key points of initial focus when I joined pediatric associates was 
um, in one or two of our markets, really materially bringing down that turnover rate. Because it, it, at the end of the day, the only way PA is going to be successful is if it's where providers want to practice medicine and staff want to work. Um, same question. I think you could probably give the exact same answer for another matter. Is I have two friends that are run large ACOs in the Phoenix area, and they say the village is having trouble keeping people, and they're having to pay large bonuses to get people. And um, and I'm going to imagine that's going to be by market because some medic some markets are going to have um, hospitals that are running off their physicians and their providers like wildfire because they're a sinking ship and everybody sees it and they're treating them poorly. And some markets you know, are much better at keeping their docs happy. So um, in some markets, are you, do you, would you say you're having mixed turnover rates um, because of the markets and the, the competition that for physicians uh, talent? Yeah, I'd say there's, there's certainly a lot of attempted poaching that occurs in our markets. And, and so we have pockets of it, but, but what I would say is when, if I look at it from the macro level, um, the broad statistics would indicate no, but certainly there are hot spots that frankly keep me up at night where we know we've got work to do. And, and a big part of my job having been here, you know, eight months is uh, cleaning up, right? And making sure that we're not only developing the operations, but the culture that is going to be one that not only, because the way I've only ever seen success in the past is when my providers became my recruiters because they were calling their friends and explaining that they needed to come work here because this place was different. And, and that's really what we're trying to drive towards. All right. So how do you feel about non-competes? Um, I think they're a relic and they should go away. Uh, nice. If you have to depend on a non-compete, uh, you've lost the engagement of that individual. And why do we want to remove care from our communities when there's such a shortage to begin with? Yeah, it's real talent war. You know, so my last question, and I know I'm going to respect your time, is I get the Walmart strategy. They're strong rurally, and they've got basically contractors doing all the hard uh, lifting. And they have trouble getting them to prescribe more meds because they don't work for them. I get that strategy. It's beautiful, but it's confusing to me a little. But that's their strategy. I get the wall green strategy because Village MD I know well, and, and they're very clear in what their mission is. CVS, I have no idea what their strategy is. <laughs> the minute clinics failed because they're urgent care to deliver more meds, more DME, more infusions. But, you know, I mean, do you have any idea what their CVS strategy is? I don't get it. Uh, I can't tell you the insider. I certainly have my my supposition. And I think it's, you know, Ron, I mean, look, it, at the end of the day, you think about provision of healthcare, right? Whether it's the payers, the the drug manufacturers, device manufacturers, the insurers, the providers, it's a zero-sum game, right? And and we all know that healthcare is too expensive and it's become like an old tagline at this point. It still grows as a percent of GDP. And so there's a breaking point. And at some point you can't feed the same number of mouths with the same dollar. And so there are going to be have to be fewer mouths that are earning a living off of other people's healthcare dollars. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, you think about retail pharmacy where Amazon bought PillPack, you have everybody else. I Gosh, I get my chronic meds over mail order, right? And so you think about CVS and Walgreens both have these massive footprints uh, all over the country. And, you know, you can only sell so many candy bars and cigarettes. And so um, for them, I think it's an opportunity to kind of realign and reutilize some of their space because they do have, you know, great locations overall, the corner main and main, if you will. 
And I think my guess for CBS is that the market really locked up in 2021 as far as large enough uh, national primary care players um, that would represent potential partners for, for a national organization like CBS. You know, and Oak Street really came out at the end of that. And there was some back and forth about whether they were pursuing, you know, some other potential transactions. Um, I'm guessing it's potentially a little bit of that and and playing catch up. But I, I say that purely from an outsider's perspective. OK, um, do you have five more minutes? I'm going to ask Chanel to cut that question out. But please. You have... Yeah. OK. OK, good. Um, all right, Andy. So my last question and of all my last questions <laughs> is um, you have an opportunity now as an independent to uh, grow. What What is the game plan? What are you looking to do over the next three to five years uh, in your current field? We want to grow pediatrics as a respected specialty with a focus on pediatric health and wellness that not only gives a better platform for pediatricians and pediatric APPs to provide care, but so we can focus on the advancement of pediatric outpatient care, both at the, the quality and level of service perspective, as well as representation. Because Ron, as, as you said in your intro, it, it's the hospitals that have the attention right now. And I think our pediatricians really need to be heard when it comes to policy decisions, especially given that you know, approximately 50% of the kids in this country are covered by government plans, by Medicaid. And so I, I think there's a, an opportunity for us to ensure that the pediatricians really have a voice in, in what they see, what the needs are, and help direct policy in the right way. And I don't mean necessarily direct funding. And it, there's plenty of other groups, uh, you know, American Hospital Association and other that are really good at that. Uh, but but we've even had some really early initial successes on how we can partner to to align the right strategy there. Are you aware of any national or regional firms that are doing direct primary care for PD? Because it's a different animal than family or internal medicine. Uh, it's a different population. I don't. Do you do you see that as a maybe a future for y'all or at least a sliver for y'all? Yeah, it's a great question. I think given the fact that our mission is all patients, all kids. Um, and, and so certainly we have uh, a real focus on creating access for Medicaid patients for, you know, and for whom these are folks you wouldn't expect to be able to pay, you know, a supplemental expense for the high touch. But but part of, Ron, so I, I would I would probably be surprised in the nearer term if, if that were there. But I think at the same time, we're looking for opportunities. Is there something we can get? We can't get full direct primary care without the true model, but can we get closer to it and, and some of the great tenants that it provides uh, for all of our patients by leveraging our size, leveraging tech and efficiency um, to free up our providers to have that higher touch, higher connectivity? Well, I'll give you a little insider intelligence and then we'll, we'll thank you for your time. As we've had, I think the CEOs or CMOs of most of the major players in DPC nationally, some are regional, but several are national for sure. Um, there's 25 million members enrolled in DPC across the country, not a few hundred thousand like you'll see on DPC Frontier. There's also 8 million of those that are getting it free, meaning the employer's got a one-on-one -one ROI and they're passing that on to their employees. Good. Uh, DEI officers love it because it's all races, creeds, colors, income levels are all getting it for free. So it's a beautiful, you know, Bernie Sanders dream. Yeah. Um, and and the other good thing about it is labor unions like it. I mean, we've got 
threatening labor strikes and postage and uh and airlines a couple of big airlines we also have the the writer strike and the actor strike i'm not sure those would be going on if they all had free health care so it's a possibility that's unbelievable eight million is nothing happening like that anywhere in any country so that's really kind of a good news story that nobody's talking about I, I agree. I think DPC absolutely doesn't get the attention uh, that it deserves. And, and and certainly, and Ron, I'd even love to talk to you offline about, you know, any perspectives on, from your view on, on that with the pediatric focus. Uh, I will. Yeah. That'll be a two minute conversation. I got a real <laughs> strong opinion on that. Uh, um, good. Yeah. Well, Andy, uh, how do people find you if they want to reach out and learn more? Uh, my LinkedIn, Andrew Thompson, otherwise, uh, my, my personal email address is T H O M one zero three, three at gmail.com. Um, or my work email address is Andrew.Thompson at pediatric associates.com, which may just be the longest email address ever created. Okay. Well, there, there you go. Um, and if you could fly a banner overhead, um, with one message for America, what would that say? Let's do more and better to take care of our kids because it's going to have positive down, downstream uh, effects on every corner of our country in our future. Nice. Okay. Thank you, Andy. Thanks so much, Ron. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.